Hello and welcome to another episode of How Not To Make A Game. I'm your host Stuart Neil, and joining me on this episode are Faye and Martin Mellardet from Imaginary Friends Games. Hello. Hi, Hi. thanks for having us. Thank you for being on. Imaginary Friends Games was co-founded in 2019 by Faye and Martin, a multi-skilled married couple who are pursuing their dream of making small and heartfelt video games. It's quite a uh, a manifesto as such, I suppose, <laughs> is the way of looking at it. We've worn a lot of hats in the past and I think we're, we're wearing even more hats now, mm-hmm. to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Now, one of the things that sort of jumped out um, to me about your career so far has been that you both worked at Nintendo, um, and that was even just before setting up Imaginary Friends Games. A quick question would be, what led to the decision to leave and start a new studio slash brand? Do you want to take this one? Yeah, I think I think this one's for me because it's a sort of a more serious one. Mm-hmm. So sorry, everybody at home to start on a bit of a downer. We, we moved over to Germany to work at Nintendo because that's where the European head office is like 12 years ago now. And about six years ago, unfortunately, my dad passed away really, really suddenly. Mm-hmm. It was a, a proper, you have to fly home now mm-hmm. kind of thing. And um, as happens when somebody passes away like that and you're, you're grieving, obviously, mm-hmm. you kind of have to do all of the things of real life anyway you know write the eulogy and and say all those words in front of people and kind of carry on as best you can with real life and you have this I don't know existential crisis is perhaps a little too strong but you do find yourself having this period of self-reflection of like what am I giving back to the world how do I want to be remembered am I you know am I like values aligned with how I'm living and what I want to to bring into the world basically mm-hmm. and um we sort of looked at it and realized that we were actually really far away from the people we love at that point yeah um and you know when you do a job like I was in editorial for 10 years at Nintendo mm-hmm. and so you find yourself your writing and your passion for writing about video games is like it, that's the companies now yeah, it sort of belongs to them in yeah. a way. Mm, yeah. And you kind of question, like, I'd, I'd quite like to be writing again. I'd quite like to be creative. And we'd always wanted to work in games together. Because, like... Yeah, our careers have always been sort of parallel. Yeah. You know, we both worked at Nintendo together in the same office. Different teams, different jobs. Responsibilities, mm. completely. Yeah. Um, and the same at Codemasters, too, mm, yeah. prior to Nintendo. And prior to that, you were at Sony as well. And and I was like learning to be a teacher. I was doing biology and stuff. So I went from that into QA. So it's been the sort of winding road that's brought us through testing and technical testing and editorial on my side and on Martin's side, just lots of really in-depth design stuff. Yeah. Um, that led us to kind of going, you know, we always talk about <laughs> like we should make a game. Yeah. And and what if, you know, when you lose someone so suddenly like that, you do go, what if that happened to me? Like, am I being scared to to be courageous? Is that like wasting time, you know? Mm. So from a very serious point of view, we kind of looked at it like we really have this dream of working actually really together in the same room and and working on the same thing and to make games because we fell in love via games you know yeah essentially (laughs) we we met at a 
live action role playing event and ab- like, about a thousand years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we fell in love like playing um, Ocarina of Time together when it first came out, and the music was at our wedding because we are <laughs> helpless geeks like that. <laughs> yeah, and then we ended up working for Nintendo. But yeah, I think it was your dad passing that was this sort of tipping point. Mm. Um, but when you've been, when you've moved to a foreign country and kind of created a career somewhere, mm-hmm. it's not something that can happen overnight to be like, pack everything up, we're going home. No, it was like six years ago that my dad passed. And then that was the point at which we started saving and planning and going, right, okay, we're going to, we're going to move home so that we can, so that we can be there and, and see the people we care about, you know, mm. but it took many, many years of saving and and sort of moving through various different stages of, of, of grief and, and progress there that that kind of was the inciting incident, I think, really. So we eventually left Nintendo a couple of years ago now and moved all our stuff back, moved our cats back. The two <laughs> cats in the game are our cats. <laughs> um, and it was just a very scary thing that we did but we we just felt like we had to dare we had to try Um, yeah and it's certainly the most uh nurturing and fulfilling working environment i've ever had (laughs) oh (laughs) thank you (laughs) so yeah a bit of a downer but um but truly when these big life events happen you kind of have the choice to to keep doing what you've been doing Mm. or really analyze what you want yeah definitely so at this point we are a couple of weeks out from shindig being released Mm. how has the reception for it been so far it's it's a really strange one isn't it well yeah so (laughs) one thing about it is the people that play it they really like it and Mm. that's incredibly gratifying it's Uh, it's wonderful um the reviews have been really positive and People seem to have really taken to the characters that we wrote, mm. and um, in in the Steam reviews we've had so far, people like quoting the characters and things <laughs> like that. It's so nice. Um, it's a it's... uniquely traumatic experience to watch someone stream your game. Oh god! Yeah. <laughs> um, <but laughs> so hard. It's also like through your fingers watching yeah. the screen. <laughs> but it's also been really, really great um, seeing seeing people sort of really relate to the characters mm. and. Uh, understand what we were going for has been wonderful yeah because shindig has its sort of serious side as well as its very bright sort of cozy happy side um there's there's a little bit of light and shade in there Mm -hmm. in terms of sales it has not been a day one smash i'll be honest with you (laughs) i'm gonna lie could be better we weren't really expecting it to be to be honest because you know we're in we're basically nobodies in in the grand scheme of things. Like we'd never made a game before. This is our debut game, mm. and I think um, now people are sort of starting to to take a look at it and and sort of see what we can do. And up until the point of launch, you <laughs> you're kind of an untested quantity, really, yeah. aren't you? And so you know, that's another reason why we really really appreciate the opportunity to get some more. Uh, ears well eyes uh, on on shindig <laughs> yeah exactly but so there... thank you very much Stuart. oh no that's okay <laughs> the actual response though in terms of what the game is and and how it's constructed and, and the kind of characters and the music and the art and all of that has been really lovely to see people seem to really like it and that's just beautiful mm-hmm. it really is we just have to somehow bring about 
more people having that experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How did the idea for the game come about? So we were um, just at the point where we were moving, like doing crossing the T's and dotting the I's of moving back from Germany. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's we like were... so much paperwork to move from Germany back to the UK, where which is where we're from. Um, and we were walking in the woods near to uh, to where we lived there. Yeah. Um, which was kind of always a place where we would go to kind of get away from things and just walk through the woods and sort of chill, I guess. Yeah, we lived right on the outskirts of the city and there was this absolutely enormous forest that just like a few minutes walk from our house and it was always just a bit of a sort of safe haven of quiet. And as we often do, we were talking about video games and um, <laughs> and the, the kind of stuff that the slightly more intangible stuff that we enjoy about games mm. um like the sense of place that a lot of games give mm. and uh, in that sense of place the feeling that you can kind of just like retreat and be safe in those places like um, the forest was for us yeah it's just a nice quiet place to mooch around and we kind of got onto this idea of hey why don't we make a game which sort of channels that yeah that's really about um, just a place where you can relax and feel at home. Yeah. Because and like you're not saving the world. Like it doesn't have to be like a high pressure kind of, of goal that you have. Um, and it doesn't have to be that like the whole world rests on your shoulders. Mm -hmm. Like, because that can be a, a, bit, a bit stressful sometimes in games. Yeah. Like, or if you have like a time limit in games or something, it, it can make me quite antsy. Or you meet these lovely characters and you're like, Hey, is that character going to yeah. die? Is that guy going to die? To <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's sort of how I think it was your, uh, you first coined it as being Baxter's Party, which yeah. for a, a while was, was Shindig's sort of unofficial name. Yeah, because something <laughs> we should mention is we've been together like absolutely forever, mm -hmm. um, like more than 20 years, because my bones are turning to dust right now. Um, <laughs> but like, part of the things that we do being role players um and being ridiculously smitten with each other is yeah the, the characters of shindig not all of them but quite a few of them have been sort of in our life as characters mm. for a really really long time yeah. like there's some uh so some christopher robin style um stuff going on there like baxter for example is a, yeah. a stuffed toy that we that you I bought, bought for me you. yeah for my birthday one time and we just sort of make up characters and voices constantly and so obviously when we were thinking up like what could be just like a nice nice game that we could make well why don't we use the characters that we we've sort of already or at least some of the characters that we've already got in in our heads mm. because they're funny and we wanted to share them with people and so, yeah, the idea of like you, you're going to plan a party for, for Baxter and our other imaginary friends, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, the sort of the spurious idea of like you've basically been hired to do it sort of came later, but it came quite naturally as an extension of that. And in the game, you find out why you've been hired to help organize a party mm -hmm. eventually. But it just came naturally out of that wandering in the woods, really. Yeah. Um, in a tweet that you'd made, Faye, um, you'd mentioned sort of the influences on the game um, being sort of Henson Productions, uh, Frog and Toad, Hey Dougie, Sarah and Duck, and even a little bit of Night in the Woods. Mm. I'm going to say Hey Dougie and Sarah and Duck are very British <laughs> comedy. <laughs> 
I, I, Absolutely. I know they're specifically for kids, or at least they're um, shown on uh, CBBC. Um, I love both of them just because they are, yeah, they have that. so great. Yeah, they straddle that sort of wonderful um, sort of middle ground between being funny for the adults, but being wonderful for the kids as well. Yes, absolutely. A lot of the sort of the humor and the characters in Shindig definitely come across like that as well. Oh, that's great. Um, that's really what we were going for, to be honest. Mm -hmm. But the, in terms of inspiration, Shindig's so many different things as well. Yeah, I think like the the thing about the, the inspirations of Shindig is that the video game ones are quite abstract. <laughs> that they are things like the sense of place that's comes from point and click adventures for yeah, example yeah like mm -hmm. day of the tentacle and sam and max are really sort of my my ones of those whereas the the more direct inspirations are off our children's media and like you say often the children's media that sort of transcends that mm. having been made for kids that you either you know the stuff that the parents find themselves enjoying yeah we call it like the pixar effect basically yeah. where it you you watch Toy Story and everybody gets to enjoy it, but it's all on a slightly different level, and that's what makes it sort of a bit more universal and enduring. Because when you when you grow up watching Toy Story and things like that, then watch it again as an adult, you're like, oh, I didn't get that reference before. <laughs> I didn't get that joke before. How long did the game take to make? Oh, it's it has been basically two years, right? Yeah, because. Um, the thing is, we we started the game with literally no experience at all in certain areas. Mm -hmm. Like Martin was a designer for basically his entire career, and I did editorial stuff, all of the you know writing of social posts, writing of websites, back of the box text, that kind of um, marketing mm -hmm. uh, text basically was my area, and so we, we knew we could do those. <laughs> yeah, we started out with this kind of foundation i guess that we could do characters we could do dialogue mm -hmm. and we could do design yeah and everything else we were essentially going to have to learn but we also really wanted for the whole game to be just made by us and nobody else mm -hmm. we got some really kind offers of people saying like hey i can compose music for your game or hey i could do some voice acting for your game or whatever um and they were really kind offers but we from the very beginning we had yeah. this really clear idea of of like we call it like human scale development basically mm -hmm. like with shindig we'd gone from this very global scale of you know 400 uh, layers of approvals for everything and and you know everything is really specifically aimed in a certain direction um and beautifully executed in that way but that means a lot of work for lots and lots of people. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to and see you never what really we could have, do. You never really have ownership over something like yeah. that. Like, yeah. Even when you know that, oh, yeah, that was my idea, say. Yeah. It, it never feels the same. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we definitely wanted to set out going, right, what can, what can we do, just the two of us on our own? So that meant that we had to learn from complete, nothing like no knowledge whatsoever and no experience all the art stuff all the animation stuff all sound design and and recording and every single part of the implementation into unity um the implementation side was was all martin's side and though that's one label that's like huge amounts of work and mastery 
Yeah. And I mean, it's something that's really changed from like when I, when I began as a designer at that point, that sort of like PlayStation two era, it was still the time when a designer's main uh, software program was Microsoft word. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there was a guy to do the rest. It's funny. Cause it took us two years, but because like Not always at least a year of that was, was I, I mean, just so much learning, you know, and like certain parts of the game came together really, really fast. We designed and wrote the game script together. Um, and the actual puzzle design and, and the sort of the the, story, the overall <laughs> like design of we're going to have these locations and that kind of thing that took us a few days writing the actual script like physically writing it together took a couple more days and then everything else everything took, else took time. forever um because guess what making a game is actually really hard <laughs> it's so hard you know we're also very particular mm. about everything yeah like we're super lucky and and grateful that this is something that we've made and done as our job for the last two years but make no mistake it's it's a miracle whenever any indie game like really hits the shelves mm. like whenever yeah. any game hits the shelves full stop it's it's like an act of god or something <laughs> you mentioned there about using unity um you also used yeah. adventure creator um as sort of the primary yeah. game engine obviously you'd mentioned there about sort of learning skills and what have you was using something like Adventure Creator an awful lot say easier than learning something a lot bigger? Um, so, mm. for example, you know, a, a larger scale Unity project or Unreal, etc. Yeah, well, so definitely we went with Adventure Creator partly to give us that structure and that mm. framework, both for uh, making the game and kind of determining what the game would be. So, mm. we, you know, we're using Adventure Creator; it's going to be broadly this kind of a game yeah and also to give us a structure to learn the rest yeah um adventure games point and click adventure games particularly once you're past the the inventory and moving around and things like that there there are lots of kind of small instances of okay when you do this a little animated sequence plays mm. so okay we're going to learn how to do that yeah and adventure creator particularly um, has really, really strong uh, support from its creator. Yeah. So uh, Chris Burton of Icebox Studios, who made Adventure Creator, is incredibly active on the forums. Mm. And um, it's really, really great being at that point where you can't, okay, I've tried X and I've tried Y and it just doesn't seem to be working. Mm. And, you know, the next day you can have Some someone feedback. or one yeah. saying, oh, try this other thing or, you know, helping you out with a bit of, um, more elaborate code or more closer into the engine stuff that I wouldn't understand. Yeah, because the thing is, Adventure Creator is is um, it's it's a, a paid product. It's like fifty or sixty pounds or something. Mm -hmm. um, and we looked at first at different uh, kinds of, of engines, basically that we could use, and kind of weighed up their pros and cons. And it very much was okay. We're probably going to go for the point and click style of game as our first game. Adventure Creator. I mean, other engines can do that kind of stuff too, but Adventure Creator has this very active forums, this active creator itself in Chris, mm. and also sort of ticks the boxes of letting us not have to worry about so much, um, getting it just the nitty gritty nuts and bolts working, really. It also kind of prevents scale creep, because yeah. if you are 
Oh, you say that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nothing can prevent escape creep. Yeah, but I think I would always be inclined. Mm. It's, it's a terrible aspect of me, but, you know, oh, perhaps we could put a vehicle section in. <laughs> I don't know. I think it, it definitely helped to provide that sort of scaffolding, at least, um, and to keep us on track because, you know, you hear these stories and um, we've done it ourselves almost, mm-hmm. where as an indie dev, you, you get all these thousands of ideas while you're making something and the cliche is i'll just work on this one in my spare time and before you know it you've moved over to that one Mm. and i think working in adventure creator and learning our way around it really helped to sort of keep our focus on that so we have a big list of ideas and projects but we haven't started actively on those yet like Mm. we really stuck with shindig and i think adventure creator helped with that yeah with Shindig obviously being a point-and-click adventure and obviously the resurgence of point-and-click adventures in recent years, was it a conscious choice to go down that path or is it just something that you've always loved? Um, I know you had mentioned um, sort of Maniac Mansion and um, sort of similar games mm-hmm. as well. Was that just a sort of a, a genre that you enjoyed? Yeah, I mean, for me, I've always just loved point and clicks and mm-hmm. we didn't have like loads of them available growing up because like I was, you know, born in the 80s sort of teenager in the 90s and it was it was the old computers with you know loads of of the of the the little floppy disks and Mm -hmm. digitized speech in a few Mm -hmm. cutscenes and that kind of stuff so I just loved those kinds of games um they really captured my imagination and I'm I'm the puzzle game person in the house I think yeah when it comes to playing games the division of labor is that uh, you do the puzzles and I do things like boss fights. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, and but you liked point and clicks as well. No, I like... did, um, but it was really only when I met you and we played them together that mm. I got through them. <laughs> um, and I mean, I really like playing around with the sort of form and structure of games. Mm. It's what I do for fun, <laughs> and um, yeah, so I, I also enjoy the the sort of challenge of okay, well, what can you do with the point-and-click genre mm-hmm. that's not just a straight-ahead uh, tribute to those classic games of yore? Yeah, because with Shindig, you know, we haven't really talked about exactly what it is, um, but we are trying to subvert some of those, the, the kind of tropes of the genre a little bit in that I think people kind of expect um, from a point-and-click game, it's it's just a sort of natural assumption that it's going to be pixel art it's a natural assumption that you're going to try and make the puzzles as hard as you can and you know you've probably got a a saki protagonist that kind of thing and when we first came up with the idea of shindig being like baxter's party we had this whole i don't want to do any of that like Hmm. i I want you it to be a like you're only able to be nice in the game you're only able to make people's days better you know Mm -hmm. yeah and that that kind of choice architecture really informed like the whole design <laughs> yeah the whole sort of soul of the game absolutely yeah one of the things i noticed in my playthrough of it was it avoids a lot of the sort of the negative cliches about point and click adventures and as in there's sort of an awful lot of backtracking because you get different little objects from different people who are then you know you have to pass those on to somebody else or mm-hmm. use them for a puzzle it felt a lot more 
you can go here, you can get what you need here, and you just hold on to that for the meantime. And once you got a lot of the objects, everything kind of sort of clicked, and mm -hmm. you were able to sort of run through that quite quickly. And then you got to another part of the game, and there's just a little bit more. And I thought the pacing-wise was really, really well done that way. Was it hard to sort of work out the pacing, and were you aiming for sort of a particular length of playtime? Yes, hmm. definitely. <laughs> I think we we at first thought the game was going to be about one to two hours, mm -hmm. basically, because the the premise is very simple. Um, just just to sort of fill in, the idea is that you are helping a bunch of glum animal chums to throw a party. So you need to get decorations, music, drinks, and cake. It's it's very sort of simple, straight ahead mm -hmm. premise, and you go around this island, meeting these characters, getting stuff, and solving the puzzles that are sort of presented to you in order to do that and we thought that the game was going to take when when we designed it like one or two hours max mm -hmm. to play and that's really what we were aiming for just that it would be like a compact uh, evening sized kind of thing mm -hmm. so that parents can play it when the kids have gone to bed because yeah. they can't play like thousand hour rpgs anymore they haven't got the darn time you know yeah <laughs> yeah and after a while it did sort of transpire that like oh um, maybe this is more like two three hours maybe mm. this is more like three or four hours <laughs> yeah and when because like i said we'd already designed it but the actual game once all the the dialogue and everything was mm. in was more like a three to four hour game which was still like within our compact remit that we've been aiming for so yeah. we were quite happy with that but regarding the the structure of the game mm. um and things like backtracking so We'd already made the decision that we didn't really want the puzzles to be hard. Mm. And I kind of, I, I like to say that, you know, in, in a platform game, say, you've got your main mechanic of sort of running and jumping. And in Shindig, that's talking to people. Mm. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. And in that same platform game, you've got your rings or your coins or something. And they're usually used essentially to to guide you you know you know you have to jump up onto that platform because there's a ring or a mm. coin spinning up there and that's what, how we wanted to use the puzzles yeah so we didn't want people to get stuck because we wanted a variety of people to be able to play the game yeah so the puzzles were sort of intentionally designed with exploration in mind and that kind of informs the pacing of the game too yeah so we wanted it to be that essentially the the best puzzle in this kind of game is one which leads you to a new place or lets you meet a new person. Mm. So very intentionally, the the sort of first act of the game mm. is you go around all the locations that you can get to, you talk to people, you find out what's going on with them, and you eventually get together like, oh, this person needs this and I can get that from there. And the, the sort of the second act is when you get to open up the sort of second part of the island. And that was done very intentionally so that, I mean, when you make an adventure game, like there's, there's so much going on under the hood. There's all of these like hundreds of fulcrum points of, of, okay, now mark that that person has talked to him for the first time. Mm. Now mark that that item has to vanish and can't be taken mm. again. All of this stuff that seems very simple, but when there's thousands of those, it, it mm. all mounts up. Yeah. Um, so we really wanted to have it so that you have the the sort of Snorlax character, as it were, um, <laughs> blocking your progress. <laughs> um, yep, it's a Pokemon reference. And when 
the player passes that certain point, we know that they must have done X, Y, and Z and completed certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second act of the game is intentionally designed so that you can have those, where have I seen one of those? Aha kind of moments. And things can be quite pacey mm-hmm. leading towards the end of the game. It, it was all, it's all by design, you know? <laughs> it's, yeah. it's something we really put a lot of thought into and it seems to have shaken out quite nicely seeing people play it and hearing what they have to say about it. it. It's really nice to watch people kind of be quite leisurely and slow in the first part of the game and then towards that end game go, oh, and I can also and sort of rush around and use the fast travel system that we put in to nip around the island and do these cool things. Yeah. You mentioned there about um, sort of the pathway for the second act being blocked as such, and <laughs> in in yeah. in the game it is blocked by um, Astrid, who is a cat, who is also your cat, and there's also a digitized version of your cat. It's true. Yeah. That kind of brings me on to um, Shindig uses obviously then a variety of drawing styles or you know um, character creation and things like that. One of the things that I thought was very good was the fact that you could actually choose and change the person that you're playing as as well Mm. obviously an awful lot of games have a very set um sort of player um in mind and what have you whenever they're Mm. you're starting up Uh, so i thought that was really refreshing um they actually have that option thank you we we worked really hard and it took us absolutely ages to get it in there um there's there's actually a bunch of stuff that that's that we kind of made a point of putting in that I think a lot of players maybe won't notice mm-hmm. or, or won't, won't necessarily value because it's not for them particularly. Yeah. But for us, it was really important to put in, like you say, this character creator where, you know, it's not usually the default in video games mm-hmm. um, for people of color to to be the first choice, but that's what we wanted our character creator to be. You go into there and you can choose a variety of skin tones and hairstyles and hair colors and glasses or beards or whatever mm. but we really wanted that that initial default to be you know a bit refreshing yeah. actually a little bit of a different break from the norm and that's you know um we've got closed captions that we put into the game as well to sort of help like hard of hearing players mm. um get a bit of an idea of the ambience as well like kind of trying to instead of just going music intensifies <laughs> sort of going uh, what kind of music is it what kind yeah. of sounds mm-hmm. are yeah. they would they be hearing yeah so the, the the closed captions really carry the tone of the game mm-hmm. hopefully in the same way that the the sounds of music would yeah, do exactly mm-hmm. yeah i whenever i started playing it um I, just because it was one of the default options i just left that on and i actually found that for non hard of hearing people the closed mm. captions being on actually added an extra little layer of humor oh, brilliant. <laughs> to it because <laughs> it was almost as if you, whenever you were writing them, you were sort of sitting there thinking, right, how are we going to describe this? And, <laughs> Absolutely. Because <laughs> you know, how do you describe what jazz sounds like for somebody who's never heard jazz? Exactly. Yeah. You know, how, how, how do you even imagine that? And we just did our best to sort of give colorful language mm-hmm. that would would give a give the feel yeah. you know um yeah no, i i hope that 
other people pick up on um, that little bit of sort of humour, but it's very useful humour um, in the way that it's done. So obviously, you know, I hope that it helps everybody that uses them. Absolutely. But yes, I thought having the closed captions on as default, um, and again, whenever um, games have like subtitles on as default, I always think, you know, at least they've put that even just a, a minute of thought into that of going, mm. right, well, why not have this on? Because it does help yeah. so many people. You know, if people yeah. don't like it, we'll just turn it off. But at least yeah, have yeah the you def- can always opt yeah, out. At least have the default there for them, you know, to have it on. Yeah, I was just about to say that that we also have it. So when the game first starts, your first menu options come up. The music's turned off mm. because we learnt that during certain religious festivals, um, if you're Muslim, then certain people are of the opinion that you shouldn't be listening to music during those festivals. And we don't know when people are going to be playing our game game or who's going to be playing our game so in that case the very first time you actively have to turn the music on and it's put there intentionally to just sort of try to be as sensitive as we Mm. could to all different kinds of people you know um because why not if you've got the power to make any kind of world just turn it up yeah (laughs) one of the things that i loved about the game was the voice acting um but not just the voice acting i think it was also the way the characters were written as well you know each of the characters has its own unique voice but it's both in the way that the dialogue is delivered um, by yourself eh, for most of them (laughs) Um, but also in the way that the dialogue was written one game that i recently played was coffee talk Mm. which is obviously you're a barista and you're talking to um, the patrons coming in and doing but one of the things that i noticed about that was while there was a variety of characters they all seemed to talk in the same tone. You know, it, it wasn't an audio thing, but it was just the way they were written. Whereas mm. Shindig just was completely different to that. Mm. It it really made sort of quite an impact on me, the fact that everybody talked in a different way, even as text. Um, and I thought that was fantastic. Thank you. Well, thank you we, very much. We tried really, really hard yeah. to give them those voices. <laughs> like I say, the a lot of the characters in Shindig have, have been with us for like 20 years Mm -hmm. but some of them are completely new just for the game that's true Um, and i think for us being having that sort of role-playing background basically like both of us as a couple um we found it to be a part of the fun of making the characters is like figuring out the weird little ways that they speak and (laughs) and their odd little turn to phrase and i think this is perhaps going to sound a little cold, but mm. I don't mean it that way. But a game that's so text heavy like Shindig, mm. a lot of its value, like its play almost, is in the reading of the text. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So we did try to make sure that there are little jokes and uh, fun uh, turns of phrase in, in every corner of, of the oh game. Oh God, there's so many puns. <laughs> but that, I think that's because as well, one of the sort of aesthetic choices we've made with Shindig is that the the speech bubbles, the subtitles of the actual, you know, what the characters are saying are always on screen. You can't mm. turn it off. It's it's literally supposed to look like a comic book. Yeah. Um, and I think that that kind of informed how we wrote the characters to make sure that they use these uh, these varied phrasings and, and give these little twinges mm. of individuality there. And we kind of wanted to put voice acting in it from oh, yeah. the beginning. We were a little unsure at first whether we'd yeah. be able to pull it off. Technically, I mean, mm. because you didn't mention it before, but mm. um, when Faye was at Codemasters, she worked on a game called Overlord, yes, mm-hmm. um, which was written by Rihanna Pratchett. Yeah, very talented writer. 
and you were helping out with the editing of the script for yeah. that and um, you did some voice acting in the game yeah I got to spend a couple of hours in you know the the proper voice booth um, doing a voice uh, for one of the mistresses in Overlord and and to really sort of get into that character. You did monsters and stuff as well. Yeah, I did monsters and sort of a bunch of uh, incidental stuff for Jericho and a couple of other things as well. And that led to you spending hours and hours in a cupboard (laughs) (laughs) in our house. Yeah, yeah. All the voice stuff for Shindig was recorded in our wardrobe, in the the dark, basically. (laughs) (laughs) So in, in our day to day lives, we, I think I mentioned before, we, we often talk in these voices and that's both of us. Mm. And we kind of thought we were, that it would be a slightly more of a division of labor in terms of the voice acting. Yeah. But after a while, both in terms of how much time the, the implementation was taking on my side. Yeah. Cause it's an enormous job. You're like elbow deep in unity all the time. And, um, I think you are you're a far more versatile and kind of reliable voice actress than me. Thank There's, you. Um, <laughs> Stephen Fry says this thing about the difference between him and Hugh Laurie, where he says that people people consider him an actor, but really he can just read stuff out well, um, <laughs> whereas Hugh Laurie is a, a, an actual real actor who embodies characters, and I think that's the difference between us. Do I get to be Hugh Laurie? You're Hugh Laurie. Right, I'm sexy. <laughs> I mean, Stephen Fry is very sexy as well, just yes. I'm more of a human person. Um, Yeah, so, you know, we we kind of went down the list and I didn't want to do any of the the girl characters' voices because I don't think there's... I mean, you've got me, I might as well do them, right? Yeah, exactly, right? And um, Faye also sings very well. Yes, I do. I sing at least. So I felt like any of the characters that sing, it's better if Faye does them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that kind of naturally led me to being Baxter and Hob and bunch of those guys mm-hmm. and then there were some other characters that just you know sitting there in the booth trying to nail it each time and like maybe the first time i get it and then it just drifts big bonus for example was going to be me <gasps> um but i just couldn't keep it on target for for big bonus because because i'm probably i'm probably just going to slip into the voices here sorry but like <laughs> like yeah i had to have like a bunch of uh, like a bottle of cough syrup just outside the wardrobe and I was like do a few lines as big big bonus because he's got this deep big voice and it's all like this and you know like then going outside and take like a couple of swigs of cough syrup close myself back in the darkened cupboard do some a lot of the a lot of the scenes where two characters who are both voiced by Faye are talking to each other you did do those kind of in that order yeah so you literally start off as like so I'm talking in this real deep voice. Then for the next line, I'm talking in a much higher voice. And it's actually quite difficult to then go back to the deep voice. It's really hard to do. Um, but it's also really fun. And it took a, a long time. I mean, you said before about how in these old games where they would have like one or two voices. Oh, yeah. A bit of digitized speech in the first cutscene, And you'd be like, oh. I think my earliest video game memory is sitting in like the, the sit down Star Wars cabinet mm. and hearing sort of tinny four bit Alec Guinness <laughs> saying the force would be, be with me always and being like oh my god I love this I've got goosebumps just thinking about yeah that. what a line yeah so voices in video games are magic yes. <laughs> is it hard to um 
implement the voices and what have you, um, obviously you'd need to break it up and up into sort of numerous audio files and things like that. Yeah. And obviously, I'm guessing coding around them so that they're implemented at certain stages and things. It's it's one of those things where um, Adventure Creator has various different there's di- different ways you can get them in, mm. um, but the sort of the very the long and short of the process is you sit in your cupboard or under your blanket or whatever your and professional record recording booth. Your, your professional recording booth and records hours and hours of footage and then you kind of chop them up um i used reaper for that because it's the the door the digital audio workstation mm-hmm. that i found to be most intuitive i tried a bunch of others and i just didn't get on with them it's also what you use for all the music right? yeah yeah um, so you sort of you take a few takes of each line because there might be you know mouth noises or pops and crackles on one of them. Say, once you've got all the footage, you've got to go through all that footage, pick out the line that's good, snip it up, and assign it a certain file name that um, Adventure Creator has like outputted into this enormous file, and then you've got to put every single one of those samples that you've EQ'd and you've made sure you get rid of all the you know the background noise and all that on into the game and then there's a whole bunch of fiddling around in menus to get the exact file name correct for the the system to find it no i'm not sure i recall precisely but i think there's like two and a half thousand there's, there's, lines yeah there's several thousand i think there's a bit more than that um i forget honestly yeah it's just it's thousands and thousands of lines of text mm. and of course then you've got you know we wrote all the script in two days but then you find yourself going what if the player does this? What if they think they can get this item from this guy? We should have a bespoke answer for that. Mm-hmm. And then you end up recording pickups. And of course, then it doesn't all sound like it was in the same recording session because it simply wasn't. And you do your best to kind of equalize it as, you know, so it's as uniform and consistent as possible. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm not a sound engineer. I, I was doing my best and I think it came out all right. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely did. The music as well um, was all composed and written by yourself. How do you even start going about writing and composing the music? And what sort of equipment and things were you using to record it with? Okay, um, it's it's a really tricky one to answer, to be honest. Because for me, I'm I'm not like a a classically trained musician or anything mm. like that. Like I can't I can't read music. I can just about do it if I really think about it. Like I taught myself like the first grade or so of, of, you know, music theory. But for me, I taught myself a a bunch of ukulele Mm. a few years ago. And again, like as a help for singing. Yeah. Right. Um, Just because I I wanted to be able to accompany your singing. Yeah. I wanted to be able to write songs. And I, I found that I was sort of having this stumbling block that I couldn't do it without being able to compose the chords that go behind it. And so for Shindig, everything is, everything was basically recorded, um, sorry, composed on uh, the ukulele, mm-hmm. um, recorded on my phone on like a voice note, basically. Okay. Um, so I would strum some chords and then kind of noodle with my voice over it because um, I've got pretty good relative pitch. And that's how the main kind of melodies came about. And then from that, you end up, having to somehow digitize that basically. Mm -hmm. So again, in Reaper, painstakingly entering in the notes, like looking where my fingers are on the the fretboard of the ukulele (laughs) going, okay, that's a B, (laughs) that's a C and dragging the notes around. And then once you've 
once you've got things in, because I started doing that in Fruity Loops mobile mm -hmm. that you can get on, on tablet and stuff. And then that kind of became in Reaper to get like the proper instruments in it. Um, and it's just lots of dragging around notes until it sounds about right. Mm. And are, some of the songs have live instruments on them. Yes. Usually ukulele, but there's some guitar I can't. Yeah, yeah. And Martin wrote one of the songs. That's true. So um, it, it wasn't Dr. Only... <laughs> um, That was me. But mostly it was just a lot of trial and error and humming over chords and then getting that digitized. And then from that digital version, adding counter melodies and like clever sounding stuff, just going, it should go like this here um, and putting extra tracks in like that, basically. Mm. Lots and lots of trial and error. <laughs> With respect to Shindig, is selling a game like that um i.e sort of shorter universal age range um a point and click adventure etc mm. a hard thing to do or is it just hard because of the volume of games coming out every week mm. yes <laughs> yes <laughs> um, um so yeah i think we're at this point now in 2021 i guess we've been here for a little while now actually where the the games market is just massive but mm. also incredibly diverse mm. there are so many games and you know and the, and so many are so good that's the thing like the general quality level of games coming out is really really impressive mm -hmm. so for the you know in my previous life i spent a lot of time you know looking at the the games market the games industry as a whole mm. and you can see these ridiculously specific niches that are quite well supported and there are companies working in them that have been making games uh, in, in those specific niches for ages and ages. But because the, the diversity of product is so huge, it becomes about communicating to the right people that, okay, we have a, we have a game you might like. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it's really hard because it is hard because there are so many games coming out, but it's also, I think, just hard to find your people. And I think that's the kind of challenge we have with Shindig, mm -hmm. because though it is, though it is a point and click in terms of, of its mechanics, it's perhaps not so attractive to the kind of classical point and click audience who want their tricky puzzles and they want their pixel art and mm -hmm. they, they sort of have an idea of what they're going to enjoy because those games are really good, you know? Yeah. Um, and so it can make it quite difficult to find the bit of the audience that that maybe wants the wandering around and being in the places in the environments more than the kind of classical tricky puzzle side. Mm -hmm. And you know, of course, most other mediums communicate genre in terms of I don't know, like tone and story elements. Mm -hmm. Whereas games has this thing where it can sometimes be what you do in the game mm. and it can sometimes be like where and how you do it or you know there's a lot there's a lot of different ways that you communicate things um and with the direct control aspect of games that can be very different yeah because you know we say that shindig is sort of similar to night in the woods i think it's tonally quite similar to a short hike mm. but mechanically and genre wise very different to both of them mm. Um, so it does become quite difficult to to speak to such a diffuse audience of people. Yeah, I mean, I think 
the that shindig is such a weird hybrid of all these different things and it's not all just sweetness and light or, or it's not all that kind of grim dark side of things means that i think players don't necessarily know what they're getting themselves into um and for me i'd rather under promise and over deliver mm-hmm. but i think a lot of people might kind of not quite know exactly what they're going to get but that was very much the intent <laughs> i mean when you <laughs> just this... makes it quite tricky to to sell it yeah when the player hasn't played it yet <laughs> there's always this struggle between okay you can make a game which is easily explained as oh it's a mixture of popular game x and popular game y yeah um and then yeah it's very clear what it is you're offering mm. but then you have to compete with Mm. popular game x and popular game y for attention mm. yeah uh if you make something more unique or um, a more complicated proposition then you don't have that competition but maybe nobody knows what it is you're offering yeah um yeah. and i think you know, with to Shindig find a middle well, path right like we you know we've made this game which is this um it's all designed to have a certain emotional landscape. It's designed to be uplifting and cozy and friendly and warm and, and just generally feel like a sort of a pillow fort of a game. But we also very intentionally put in these more serious conversations about social topics and, mm. and th- touching on things like mental health, um, because awareness of that kind of thing is super important to us. But of course, none of that comes across in these very bright, colourful, cartoony visuals. Mm-hmm. But I think that, that having that juxtaposition of serious conversations in with those sort of happier, cartoony characters um, kind of just makes it that little bit more human. Yeah. And that's kind of what the game's about for me. Mm-hmm. But how do you say, play this if you're <laughs> interested in humanity? <laughs> <laughs> Prior to release, did you talk to any PR companies or sort of marketing um, advice um, or even any publishers? No, no, we didn't. We, I mean, we very specifically didn't want to have a publisher. No, Um, no. Not due to any kind of animosity towards publishers, but because Shindig is quite a personal work in a lot of Mm -hmm. ways, you know. um, It's a labour of love. It really is. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure Astrid would allow uh, her likeness to be <laughs> used in just any old game. <laughs> yeah, she'd need approval over merchandise, for example. <laughs> but in terms of the PR stuff, not agencies, no. We have friends who offered advice on that kind of thing. And of course, having worked in marketing and such before, um, I've worked very closely with PR folks. But it was kind of very much intended that we would just do it on our own yeah of course that unfortunately led to maybe not having as much buzz about the game as we would have have liked Mm -hmm. um because in a lot of cases for this kind of thing it definitely seems like having your press list having your contacts is a really valuable thing Mm -hmm. yeah it's a discipline in in and of itself isn't it Yeah. yeah And, you know, you can you can email um, journalists and such for weeks and weeks ahead of your game. And it's a very different matter if you've got Nintendo on your your email address <laughs> or if you're a kind of nobodies like us, yeah. basically. So we found ourselves in a position where we would have we would have liked more coverage. Well, any coverage really at launch. And we sort of kind of slipped through the cracks there a mm-hmm. bit. So we we appealed for for help. You know, who's going to 
who would be happy to look at our game and uh, the the indie community were amazing in their response, like recommending people um, that we didn't know about who might stream the game and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so thank you to anybody who's uh, who's helped us out on Twitter or other yeah. socials. Thanks to everyone who's looked at the game or recommended their friends who are streamers or anything like that, because it's really helped to get a few more eyes on the game. And yeah, now we play the long game and keep keep at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I have a funny feeling I know which side of the fence you're going to sort of fall on this one, mm-hmm. but you are probably uniquely placed uh, to be able to answer it. So it <laughs> is making games as an artist, sort of, i.e. sort of selling enough to get by or as portfolio pieces different to making games as a business, i.e. basically aiming to be profitable or even mega profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is everybody kind of looking for that one big game to make or do you think a lot of indie developers are more happy to have a body of work that they can be sort of proud of and even sort of live off? I I personally think, I mean, as an indie developer, my goal would be to to create a body of work yeah. that, that we can live off of. Yeah. You know, maybe a big hit happens. Because the thing is, you can strategically plan to build up a body of work. Yeah. Um, that's a sustainable and sort of predictable mm-hmm. um strategy whereas nobody knows what's going to go viral it's the sort of the the classic joke of the social media manager like people just expect me to know how to make something go viral <laughs> you know <laughs> you yeah. can't predict it by definition i think i think there are lots of people who would like their one big hit um, and it's certainly the case that you have people with these very prolific bodies of work um, who don't experience a big hit until their like 20th game or something mm, like that. Yeah. I think for for us, if we were going directly for profit, if we designed Shindig for profit, or we probably wouldn't have made a, the kind of game that it is. Mm-hmm. We probably in, would have... In lots of ways, I think. Yeah, I think we would have played it safe in lots of areas and gone for a different genre, a different art style, and tried to appeal to a sort of more popular idea of of kind of current big thing in games. Mm. And we just really didn't want to do that. I think part of setting up Imaginary Friends Games for us was really holding on to that integrity and just going i want to make something that matters i want to make something that's maybe bucks some of the trends and if that means that it's not immediately as attractive to like this huge swathe of people then that's okay like at this point i think making something you believe in for for our first game was what was most important for us mm. we say that shindig is like a pillow fort but the other one i'm quite fond of is shindig is like a therapy dog <laughs> and um yeah. that in a way it was the therapy that we needed to just make something that was a personal work not targeted at any certain demographic because yeah we've both done that yeah when you've steeped in that kind of consciousness for the past 10 years and you're really thinking about how to appeal to xyz and here's our secondary audience who are this age and how will we do this well we'll we'll utilize and leverage this it can it can really make things feel like like tick boxes Mm -hmm. and i think for shindig being such a personal project we 
of course we're, we're a business we want to make money off of it sure but we really wanted it to be something that we could put our passions into and we could learn from and grow with and like you say use it as a kind of therapy dog to hey maybe we sell out next game yeah yeah we'll totally sell out next game that's what we'll do we remember selling out as a concept oh wow <laughs> I think that personally, uh, it would be my dream to make a body of work that appeals to a broad variety of people. Like our next game isn't necessarily going to be Shindig. Mm -hmm. We've got so many ideas and so many, so much more knowledge now about the actual yeah. nitty gritty hands on side of making games that I think there's there's going to be quite a a breadth of different kinds of games coming from yeah. us. That's the aim anyway. I don't want to be pigeonholders. They're just the shindig people. They're just the colourful point-and-click people. I mean, though we already have got half-designed or three-quarters designed, um, like, sequels or DLC for shindig, because, you know, you just can't help it with these characters. You mentioned there about running um, running as, as a business, and obviously mm -hmm. with working on this game for two years, the obvious question would be finances. You know, how yeah. did you manage financially for those two years while working on this? Part of it was making an absolutely enormous amount of savings <laughs> yeah. over the years before we, we left Nintendo. Mm -hmm. But a part of it as well um, was doing consulting um, as part of the business as well. Yeah, because, you know, we talked before about how Shindig's made on a human scale. Mm -hmm. And the the bigger scale of things is something that we've we've both been involved in for decades. And it's... It's a shame to not use that. Yeah, we've, we've got all these skills and all these mm. hats that we've worn uh, in, in our previous lives um, in, you know, as part of big corporations. And with looking at people's games, in your case, and being able to analyze what's good and what's bad about them, where they can be improved, how that design can be tightened mm. and punched up. And in my case, having written, you know, parts of Nintendo Directs and things like that, writing website text and having that kind of overall editorial slant. They're big skills. And to be able to look at that from the, the side of technical testing and QA as well, and all that experience kind of rolled into one means that we've got all of this knowledge and experience that, that we can offer to other people. Um, so you know, on, on the side of the old game development part, there's also the fact that we offered some consulting as well mm -hmm. um, and have helped some people out with various different projects, um, you know, for a very reasonable fee. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, both of you have been in the industry for a while now. What has changed mm -hmm. the most during your time in the industry? And also conversely, what has changed the least but really needs to change? Okay, what's changed the most, I think, is... It's access to tools, mm. I think, mm. and also distribution. Yeah, you know, definitely. Like... 100%. Because we've wanted to make games together for years and years and years. Um, and it wasn't just sort of the, you know, the inciting incident of, of an existential crisis mm. that <laughs> meant that we felt we could move forwards and, and try to be courageous to do that. Like technology sort of caught up there. And I think that there's so many great indie games coming out at the moment because those tools are so accessible. Mm. And that's something that has really revolutionized over like the past 10 years, really. Yeah. yeah. It's strange to think that 
before we went to Nintendo, I don't think there was a Unity. Mm. Um, a game maker barely existed. It was everything was just in a different form just ten years ago, mm. and now those tools are available and the prices are lower than they've ever been and they are easier to use, you know, than they ever have been. Making games is easier than it ever has been. Yeah. It is not easy, <laughs> but it is easier than yeah. it ever has been. But, you know, for example, um, I've I've had this dream of, of writing my own songs and, and making my own music and that's kind of why I started uh, learning ukulele and I started up a little YouTube channel and things like that to just put demos out into the world. When I first started that, that's like a couple of years ago and samples, really high quality samples for MIDI um, have been available this whole time. 10 years ago, when I first wanted to do that, that sort of stuff wasn't available for free mm -hmm. and it just wasn't around. Um, so it's only in recent years that you can get things like Spitfire Labs, for example, do these amazing free VSTs and the Shindig soundtrack is absolutely full of them. Hmm. They're wonderful samples. Every indie dev who needs music in your game, who's doing their own music, go get that stuff. It's so good. Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we, we did say that, okay, sure. It, it's not, it's not been the, uh, the smoothest or most explosive of launches, but, you know, you wouldn't have been able to launch a game at all mm. without the ability to have it pressed onto discs and shipped yeah. to shops. Yep. Yeah. Back so I think that's the thing that's changed the most. I think um, visibility is a big thing that's changed too. You know, back in the day, if you made a game, you'd, you'd send a copy of it to the three magazines that existed mm. and you'd hope for a review and that was that. But now yeah, you know, everything they... is, it's really based on streamers. It's really based on people in their bedroom making amazing content and that's just a wonderful thing it's certainly helped get eyes on ours because yeah the sort of more traditional routes um indies might not get a look in mm, yeah. in terms of what needs to change well there is a giant elephant in the room though mm, yeah i mean to put it to put it completely bluntly like the games industry is full of misogyny and abuse let's be honest i just just throw it out there um, I've been on the receiving end of it. So have I. That absolutely needs to change. And um, it's way worse for marginalised folks. And that just isn't good enough. We need, we need to make the place safer for everybody. On a less serious note, I'm going to sort of put a pin in that and <laughs> leave that one there. <laughs> yeah, I think we all know that's the, the main thing. <laughs> yeah. Some other things, though, I mean, I think discoverability is becoming even a bigger problem um every day i think yeah i personally think that any storefront of a certain size really needs to start thinking about sort of curated mini storefronts where mm. you can go and search for a particular kind of game yeah rather than having to sort of just drink from the fountain yeah i think <laughs> I think getting the that visibility homes. is is really tricky and not just if you have a, a, a weird hybrid of a game like we do but you know showcases that showcase the kinds of games that we have um there needs to be more of that mm, really yeah. um because there's so many games for them to pick from you know there's no possible way that that one showcase can cover everybody so i think yeah that kind of curation aspect of things um, i think you know, the, the gaming market is huge, mm. but 
it still does sort of exist in this weird place where with movies, maybe people only go to the cinema to see Marvel movies, mm -hmm. right? But they know there are other kinds of movies. Yeah. Um, <laughs> whereas I think with games, there are a large amount of people who, yeah, the like AAA games are the only games they play, and they're not really aware that there are any other kinds of games. Mm -hmm. And they're missing out on all of these absolutely fantastic double A and, and even smaller games. Smaller, yeah. So it's, yeah, visibility, I would say, other than the elephant in the room. <laughs> it's, uh, it's still weird to live in a world where, you know, it used to be that your parents would say, are you playing Nintendo? And you'd be like, no, I'm playing my PlayStation. That's not <laughs> Nintendo. Um, and, you know, you say that you make video games and people are like, oh, did you make Minecraft? <laughs> no, no, that no, wasn't, that wasn't me. No. I didn't make Minecraft or Fortnite. <laughs> 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 yeah, the visibility thing is very interesting. Um, obviously, I play a, a range of, of, you know, quite a few consoles. I play a lot mm -hmm. on PC, so, you know, I know of Steam and Epic. And one of the things that I've found is that itch.io has been almost like a democratization of people just yeah. being able to create really small things that would never have mm -hmm. a market elsewhere. And... Mm -hmm. I think the people who make those games, yes, okay, some of them are trying to make at least a little bit of money from them, but other people are making them so that they're just out there um, in the world. Mm, definitely. It is wonderful. Yeah, it is fantastic. But again, as you say, it's the visibility of it. You know, you can go on to the front page on itch you can refresh it and there will literally be <laughs> a dozen new games, you know, every time you hit refresh. And it's... Yeah. The majority of the games that I come across are actually on Twitter normally, you know, or mm. maybe somebody mentioning it in a mm. Discord server. And that's yeah. how I find games more than actually trying to use the storefront. And again, I think some of the social networks and what have you allow people to showcase their games maybe a little bit better. Mm. You know, with yeah, their little sort absolutely. of um, short little gifts or little trailers and things like that, um, you know, yeah. and they can include a little Twitter thread about, you know, where all the links and things are and, you know, wishlisting and what have you. And absolutely. I think that has become, you know, a larger part of the game development or games marketing side of it in the last 10 years than anything else. Because as you mm. say, you know, it used to be, right, well, you pass it to the press and the press do your marketing, you know, or at least the yeah. marketing for it would have been just hounding the journalists or, you know, trying to get it out there. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, even with TikTok, there's an awful lot of, I'm starting to get games makers coming up on TikTok and they're showing, you know, their games in little sort of three minute things, you know, some of the coding yeah. and what have you. There's people who are now using things like Twitch and are actually doing the game development live so that people can mm. see what they're doing. You know, it's yeah. amazing to see what people are using the tools and platforms and things for now. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's phenomenal. And it's it explains why FOMO as a concept, mm -hmm. you know, the fear of missing out exists because we've all got these little rocket ship computers in our pockets that just will feed you a constant stream of amazing stuff that people are making mm -hmm. and it can be really hard to keep up with it um and i think as an indie it can be 
it's quite a challenge to sort of keep up with creating that kind of stuff as well. Because mm. on top of obviously making your game, you've got to market your game on that social. And we've been doing that stuff for like since the very beginning of Shindig. And I think somebody in a tweet recently said, you know, a lot of it is the diligent work of, of doing this, this digital side of things, but also a bit of luck, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, to, to get that thing that really grabs people's attention and everybody's just trying to be seen in this mm -hmm. enormous marketplace of social. And it's just, you just got to keep trying, keep working at it and hopefully be a little lucky. Yeah. With, with the kind of traditional methods of marketing being increasingly rarefied towards only only the AAA publishers mm. can afford a TV advert yeah. um, or can rely on a lot of coverage in the big websites. Mm. For other people, it's the extra burden of basically having to make art to market your art. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. The, the internet is a huge place. <laughs> yeah. And that's why social media managers exist. So what's next for the pair of you? Mm. Something shorter? Yeah. We've got, we bought a flip chart when we started the business so that we felt very business um, <laughs> and we could, you know, draw our doodles and, and puzzle uh, dependency diagrams and stuff on it. And one of those sheets is just littered with game ideas. There's just so many ideas that we have and we need to kind of pick out a few of the shorter ones, I think. <laughs> Because with Shindig, we thought it was going to be one to two hours long, and it turns out it's three to four. So I think we need to aim for something really, really short that we'll put up on itch, probably, mm -hmm. and just try and add to our portfolio of, of shorter, short and sweet games, basically. Yeah, and then basically build towards something longer than Shindig. Yeah, we've got this kind of idea things. of like... Um, there's the transformer called Bruticus, which is like made from other transformers. So the they all thank you. Yeah, <laughs> they all they all form together. And um, we've got some ideas of a game further into the future, which puts together ideas of games that we want to make, sort of more like now, mm -hmm. basically. Yeah. So some much much shorter, little tiny experiences that, that are just like you know your ninety nine p games, mm -hmm. uh, little things that take like an hour or so at max. And then we can springboard off of those ideas and concepts and that bit of practice in those areas and those dynamics. Build to our magnum opus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's next. Yeah. And we'd like to revisit the world of Shindig too. Yeah, at some point. Mm. But I think I need a little palate cleanser right now. Yeah. Yeah. Three quick questions then. Mm. Go on. Uh, what's the most important thing to get right with a game? Tone. Yeah. I think you should not lose sight of just how every tiny aspect of your game can reinforce or undermine the tone, the UI, the sounds, everything. Mm, yeah, definitely. I would say intentionality. I think that um, in concert with tone, intentionality really makes, makes or breaks a game. You know, you can have a game with stick figures in it or with, with really scrappy art or um, even little oblongs like in Thomas Was Alone, for example, things like that. Um, as long as it's intentional, that the, 
the player's suspension of disbelief is inclined to go with whatever you you give them basically it can really just set that comfortable space looking as if you're trying for something and not getting it is way worse than than keeping it simple yeah yeah <laughs> next next question <laughs> who inspires you oh i would say um i'm inspired by a bunch of different people basically any parent basically any civil servant um but but in more specific terms uh jeff fogel i think is an incredible developer who has a body of work that i really respect and his sort of attitude towards games and the way he makes them is really really admirable so that's um, jeff fogel of mm-hmm. spiderweb software yeah, yeah um, make- the gdc talk from him is so good um and definitely inspired us uh though I'm sure he hate to hear that. <laughs> um, other people would be Adrienne Mishler. I think she's fantastic. We do yoga with Adrienne um, very regularly. And she's a, a very cool entrepreneur who um, has brought yoga to the masses. And as someone who's had bad experiences with that before, thanks, Adrienne. Yeah, what a wonderful gift from the internet, huh? And for me also, women like Dodie and Orla Gartland um, who are writing music um, and being vulnerable and being open about mental health and things like that and with whip-smart lyrics and fantastic bops. So absolute inspirations. And to, to circle back onto uh, the Jeff Vogel, mm. also had a great GDC talk and another developer who's really been doing that uh, thing we talked about earlier with building up a body of work is Jake Burkett of Grey mm. Alien Games. Mm. Downright, yeah. So look out for Jeff Vogel and Jake Burkett's GDC Talks. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Yeah. Great stuff. Super inspiring. My third question was going to be how many games are in your unfinished folder and which one would you most like to finish? But you kind of covered that in what's next. <laughs> so I have kind of a little personal question. Mm. Can I have a little bit of Steve, please? <laughs> <laughs> um trying to keep a straight face for this one yes steve will talk on your podcast steve will give his opinions Mm. what do you want to know from steve (laughs) i can keep going if you like no that's more than probably for your health it's best if i don't (laughs) possibly yes wonderful Uh, at this point in the interview, I always pass it over to my guests uh, to give any shout outs or plugs that you'd like to make for either yourselves or others. Should we start with others? Yeah, definitely. So there, um, among our testing team for Shindig were two um, two cool friends who are also fellow game developers. Mm. Games by Komoku, go, go buy One Night Stand. It's a really good game. You, you will absolutely be entertained. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Go buy that game. And also, if you haven't played it yet, the Sexy Brutal is um, by Cavalier Games. By Cavalier Games, also a fantastic game. We were very honoured to have the devs from those teams uh, beta testing Shindig, and having people like that who you really respect, whose products are really fantastic products, um, looking at your game and liking it as well. Priceless, absolutely priceless. Um, and so in regards to us, yeah, um, um, please, can... please go and buy Shindig if you found anything that we said interesting. <laughs> so you can find out more about us and about Shindig at www.imaginaryfriendsgames.com. Yep. We are on Twitter as uh, at GamesFriendo is our handle. 
um, on Instagram as Imaginary Friends VG because Imaginary Friends Games was too long. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the game uh, is called Shindig. It's available on Steam and Itch. And also available is a bundle with the soundtrack too. And mm. I'll be honest, people, it's cheap as chips. It's like £5.79. It costs less than a London pint. And we're, we're not going to be selling it in the sale at 99p anytime soon. So. <laughs> so, yeah. So if you want to support us by the soundtrack bundle. Yeah. Or pay what you want on itch.io. Oh, that'd be nice. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, look at you, the salesman Martin. <laughs> but truly, um, I think that kind of wraps up our, our, our plugging session. And we just want to say thank you so much for having us on. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much for coming on. Um, if you want to, uh, you listening, want to get in contact with the show, um, you can get me on Twitter at how to make a game. That's how uh, the number two make a game. Uh, my personal Twitter is at Saintly Stewart. Uh, you can email the podcast if you want to at how to make a game cast at gmail dot com. Uh, not that anybody has, but it, it would be nice to get something. Um, if you're listening to this show, you can find the rest of the shows up on Anchor FM. We are also on most other Spotify platforms and also on Spotify, which is quite nice. Now, as I say, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank also, you so much thank for having you, us. Yeah, thank you very much for making Shindig because it is it's just such a wonderful little game. And I, I'm just so thankful that somebody has now, you know, solved the issue of how does a dog wear a lab coat? We've solved the problem of how that dog wears a lab coat. So, oh, well, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> because they are very individual. A deeply personal choice. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> So that's goodbye from me and thank you very much, Faye and Martin. Thank you very much, David. Goodbye. Bye-bye. You know, you, you have a great love for point and clicks. Sorry, you can probably hear Cosmos, our cat, actually sneezing in the background. I just like to apologize. Bless you, Cosmos. Um, Bless you, Cosmos.